the best way I can help now is if I step aside and let government get back to governing. And therefore, that's what I'll do. Just after noon today, Andrew Cuomo announced that he is resigning as governor of New York. This is coming a week after a state investigation found that he sexually harassed 11 women. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, August 10th. At the same time that we're hearing this major news out of New York, there's also a crisis developing in Afghanistan. U.S. troops are basically gone, and now the Taliban is regaining control of the country way faster than people expected. Foreign leaders are scrambling to figure out what they can do to stop it. Later in the show, we'll talk about why this is a defining moment for America's legacy in Afghanistan. But first, we need to talk about Cuomo. This is one of the most challenging times for government in a generation. Government really needs to function today. Government needs to perform. And wasting energy on distractions is the last thing that state government should be doing. And I cannot be the cause of that. Governor Cuomo's resignation is surprising because up until recently, he had insisted that he had done nothing wrong. But a report from state investigators said otherwise. It contained several examples of unwanted touching, including Cuomo allegedly groping an executive assistant while hugging her and inappropriately touching a female state trooper that he arranged to have on his security detail. The report also said that Cuomo's office unlawfully retaliated against an accuser. Just to be clear, Cuomo does deny some of these allegations. In my mind, I've never crossed the line with anyone. Just a few minutes after Cuomo finished his resignation speech, we talked to reporter Michael Shearer about what finally pushed Cuomo over the edge and what this could mean for his future, politically and otherwise. He's going to leave office in 14 days. His lieutenant governor, Kathy Hochul, will take over. And there will be a regularly scheduled election in 2022 for the next governor to take office in, at the beginning of 2023. What did he actually say in this announcement? He went over once again a lot of the defenses he has previously put forward to the 11 women who have accused him of various types of harassment. Those include that he did not understand generational changes and what behavior was acceptable. I have slipped and called people honey, sweetheart, and darling. I meant it to be endearing, but women found it dated and offensive. That certain behavior by him that was never meant to be sexual was misinterpreted. I kissed a woman on the cheek at a wedding, and I thought I was being nice, but she felt that it was too aggressive. That some of the allegations against him, specifically the improper touching of women, were just false. He denied, continues to deny those. But then he said that at this moment, his job was to look out for the people of New York, and it was in the best interest of the people of New York for him to step aside, given that it seems almost certain that the New York Assembly is going to move forward very quickly with impeachment articles against him, and, and there's a very good chance that he would be removed from office by the state Senate. It would be a protracted process, but, but there wasn't much hope for him surviving that. 
Well, I think so many people are very shocked by this news. And I think part of that shock is the fact that Cuomo didn't even seem to consider resignation as a possible option until recently. I wasn't elected by politicians. I was elected by the people of the state of New York. Uh, I'm not going to resign. Even though the president and the state senators were all speaking out against him. So what happens? Like, why is this resignation coming now after so much protracted pressure? I I mean, I think we're sort of at the last moment here. All other options had basically been exhausted. His top aide, Melissa DeRosa, who was sort of running point on him through his response to all of these allegations for, you know, six or eight months now, uh, resigned on Sunday night. All of his senior advisors, according to our reporting, were telling him there was really no hope of surviving the scandal at this point. There were a number of public polls that showed pretty large margins of voters in the state of New York who wanted him, you know, thought he had done something wrong and, and and a majority wanted him to leave office. So I think he waited as long as he could. You know, the, the option he still had left was to mount a legal defense in a political impeachment process in the state of New York. And almost certainly that wouldn't have succeeded. It would have been mm. a painful process for him. It would have re-aired all of these accusations against him. It would have kept him in the news for probably months. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, I, I think he calculated at this point that, that that just wasn't worth it. And I wonder how much of this decision goes beyond the accusations of sexual harassment, that for years Cuomo has been known as a bully, has been alienating to other politicians. And I wonder if this resignation is a recognition that he doesn't have allies in his moment of need. Well, I think he had run out of allies quite a long time ago. I mean, everyone from President Biden to, you know, the two senators from New York to a majority of the congressional delegation to a majority of the state assembly to even people who he had worked closely with in, you know, feminist circles and women survivors groups had all called on him to resign uh, in in really no uncertain terms. And that had started quite a while ago. You know, it is interesting that you're right. He was a bully and he used that as part of his sales pitch to the state of New York for years with some Hmm. success. He said, I'm a bully, but I'm a bully for you. I'm going to fight for New York. He called himself New York tough. There's certainly a lot of bullying behavior documented in this report by the New York Attorney General. But what really changed, you know, the calculation for the political universe here was that the bullying behavior was overlapping with clear sexual harassment Mm -hmm. uh, and that the victims of the bullying behavior were, you know, younger women, sometimes executive assistants or people he just met on rope lines or more junior employees of the state of New York. And that and that really changes. One thing to go after a political rival as part of the political game. It's another thing to be um, making the people who are working closely with you feel as uncomfortable as he did. Mm-hmm. So now that he's going to be resigning, what does that mean for him for the future? I mean, are there other investigations or possible charges that could still be facing him? Yes, there are several criminal investigations that are ongoing, and I don't think his resigning will end those right away. It may take some of the pressure off the prosecutors in those cases, but there's, you know, a federal investigation into his handling of nursing home deaths in the state, several state 
district attorneys have opened investigations into some of the specific claims that were made in the attorney general report. There is still an investigation being conducted by the Judiciary Committee in the Assembly in New York. It's not clear what's going to happen to that now. Um, and that investigation, notably, went beyond just the harassment allegations. It included claims that he'd given preferential treatment to COVID-19 tests to people, mm. including members of his family, claims about the nursing homes, and claims that he'd used state resources to help write a book last year during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and so we'll have to see how that investigation goes. It is possible that the New York Assembly goes forward with impeachment, that the Senate convicts him. And in that case, you know, the legislature does have the power to ban him from ever holding office again in the state of New York. Hmm. Although at this point, I think it's just too early to tell whether they will proceed down that route. I'm also wondering how you think this announcement is being seen by the women who are at the center of this, especially given some of the language that Cuomo used in this announcement, talking about how, well, I thought that the things I did were just friendly gestures, and I guess it was taken the wrong way. You know, it felt in some ways like a, I'm sorry you were offended kind of apology. Um, What do you think that says to these women? Well, I haven't talked to many. I've gotten some statements from the attorneys, and those statements have have really been focused on relief that he is gone and that he will no longer be in a position of power over anybody, you know, like he was as governor. I think, you know, for the survivor activist community, um, there was obvious frustration with, you know, him staying in office, but there was also a real concern that his continued fighting of these charges against him challenging the accounts of his accusers was really damaging to the broader cause of having uh, women feel comfortable coming forward against powerful men when this sort of thing happens. Um, And so I think there's just right now, initially just going to be relief that that spectacle will stop in, in the near future. I don't think Cuomo is going to admit guilt at any point, but at least the daily debate over whether he did what he is accused of doing will fade away. And I think for the women who, you know, step forward at great personal cost in some cases, in all cases, to tell their stories, this part of that battle is done. In addition to the obvious turmoil this will continue to cause over the next few weeks in in New York State, the collateral damage from this scandal is going to continue for a number of other people who are mentioned in that report, and most particularly two groups Time's Up, which is a a, a network that supports sexual assault and harassment survivors, has been embroiled in this. The chair of that organization recently stepped down. There are calls for an internal investigation because they were speaking with the governor's office about their response in an attempt to, the governor's office's attempt to undermine one of the accusers. A similar issue is taking place at the Human Rights Campaign, the, the largest gay rights lobby in the country, where the president of that organization Alfonso David was also uh, working closely for a time with the governor's staff. He, he was formally an advisor to the governor about how to respond to one of these accusers. And, and there is going to be an internal investigation at that organization as well about his role. So I think we, we still have more investigation and more dominoes to fall if, as you sort of step away from the governor's uh, immediate vicinity. Michael Shear is a political reporter for The Post. Rennie Svarnovsky produced this story. 
We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. So what we saw over the weekend were the most significant Taliban gains since the beginning of this last phase of the U.S. troop withdrawal from the country. Susanna George is the Afghanistan bureau chief for The Post. Taliban fighters pushed into at least five cities in just a few days. That's including Kunduz, where fighters pushed into the city center, taking control of a cluster of government buildings. These advances are significant because Kunduz is a city that Afghan government forces had spent a lot of resources on protecting. Kabul had sent some of its most elite fighters there. Air power had been used to protect the city. And the Taliban was still able to push through that security perimeter. It's also significant because the pace of these advances is yet again much faster than what any U.S. or Afghan officials anticipated. And it's really done damage to the morale of the Afghan government forces that are left protecting cities and towns that remain under government control. Almost all U.S. troops have already left Afghanistan, even as violence is getting worse. This is really the this crucible moment for Afghanistan. It's a test for whether or not the Afghan state can survive on its own. And it really also is a defining moment for the American legacy in Afghanistan. Missy Ryan covers the State Department and national security for The Post. We talked to her about the clear signal that the U.S. government is sending here, that this is no longer our war. We went from hoping to transform Afghanistan into a stable, modernizing nation to kind of hoping that it would just hang on the government until there could be some sort of peace agreement between the Taliban and the Afghan government. And now it's really looking less and less likely that there's going to be a deal, a political settlement in the near term because the Taliban has significant military advantage. And the question is, why wouldn't they press that to its logical conclusion, which would be taking over by force? And this sweep from the Taliban, is that a direct product of the absence of U.S. troops in these parts of Afghanistan? I think it's a combination of factors. The United States did stop the bulk of its air support to Afghan forces. There have been some U.S. airstrikes in recent weeks, 
but not anything like the scale that occurred um, in the past. So there's that. There's also the fact that the United States has halted most of um, its logistical and sort of planning support, enabling support for the Afghan security forces. And that was, you know, a big asset for them over many years. And then there's really the confidence factor. You know, the, the Afghan forces were built up over two decades by the United States and NATO nations. And uh, now we're seeing the sort of psychological impact that the halting of most of that support has had. Um, And that's shown really by the fact that many of the places where the Taliban has been able to take power, they have done so as a result, at least partially, by deals that are struck with Afghan forces who essentially, you know, retreat because they choose to do that rather than being slaughtered by the Taliban. And that is mm. what, you know, U.S. officials are sort of describing as a, cri- a confidence crisis on the part of, of the Afghans. And, you know, there's some finger pointing that's going on about that. But I think it really illustrates that despite two decades of training, of equipping and all of that, um, that the country's security forces did not feel capable in many cases and not in all cases to stand on its own. But also, it seems like there's a question here of what was the alternative? I mean, we've been in Afghanistan for 20 years, and I think that there's an argument that life for many Afghan people is not significantly better because of the U.S. presence. So was there any other choice for Biden? Or is this sort of the unfortunate consequence of the lack of like any good options for what the U.S. was supposed to do here? No, it's a great question. And uh, really the counter argument to those who say that the U.S. is sort of in some ways unintentionally precipitating this crisis is that how long was the you know American people supposed to continue to support this military effort? It's been two decades. And if the Afghan state can't stand by itself, well, you know, that's not necessarily the American responsibility. That's the counter argument. Um, and that if we weren't able to build a sustainable security force and a sustainable set of, you know, local institutions over this period of time that we never will. Biden sort of nodded at some of that in some of the addresses that he gave. We did not go to Afghanistan to nation build. And it's the right and the responsibility of Afghan people alone to decide their future and how they want to run their country. Certainly the State Department has been very critical of the Afghan government's inability to marshal its side of the, the the table. What we're seeing is, I think it is a question of leadership, uh, both um, political and military, uh, for Afghanistan's leaders, um, uniting them and motivating uh, the forces they have, uh, the forces that are fighting for um, the outcome that uh, I think collectively, uh, we want to see a stable and secure uh, Afghanistan. But, you know, the the flip side, of course, is the effect on the ground for Afghans. So then what does the U.S. do here? How are they responding to the fact that it looks like the worst case scenario for this pullout is beginning to become a reality? 
Yeah, and you know, I, the the officials that we talked to are surprised by everybody knew that it was going to be difficult for the Afghan forces to take on the Taliban alone because you know they had managed to pull off this extended stalemate for years and years with with the help of U.S. and NATO forces. So now we knew that there was going to be some reversal in their tactical positions across the country and their their ability to, to hold off the Taliban, but it's happened more quickly than everybody expected. And I think it's really alarmed people. So the Biden administration is in this uncomfortable position of having just made the decision to follow through with a withdrawal uh, timeline that was set under a deal negotiated by President Trump. Um, The Biden administration chose to go ahead with it, you know, with some slight modifications in the timeline. And can you just explain a little bit about that deal? Sure. So in February 2020, the Trump administration struck a deal with the Taliban, and essentially it uh, guaranteed a full American withdrawal in exchange for some conditions, which you know included uh, the a break uh, by the Taliban with Al Qaeda. So essentially, the Taliban saying we're not going to support Al Qaeda, and we'll make sure that Al Qaeda doesn't attack the United States from Afghanistan. And then the Taliban engaging in a peace process with the Afghan government. The hope was that during that period they could come to some sort of political settlement that would you know probably include some Taliban in the government, some non-Taliban, and you know that they would work it out that way. So you know the. The United States has is complying with its end of the deal with withdrawing, but the peace process has not advanced um, as people really hoped it would. And the Taliban, instead of reducing violence, they've ramped up the violence in this very, very dramatic way. So the Biden administration decided to, you know, stick to its terms of the deal, essentially, but they're having to square that with this really terrifying situation across Afghanistan, where this state that we've worked two decades to sustain is really on the point of, it seems, under significant threat. One of the indications of that is that Zalmay Khalilzad, who is the presidential envoy for Afghanistan peace, he is now part of this international crisis meeting that's happening in Doha, Qatar right now among countries that support Afghanistan. And have been essentially they're trying to formulate a, a unified international response to this sweep of the of Taliban forces across the country. And, you know, it, it's an indication of how concerned people are, but it also raises the question, what can the United States and NATO nations do hmm. now that most of the international forces are gone? What leverage do they have? Yeah, like, what is the answer to that question? Because it does seem like the whole point right now is to pull out the U.S. presence and pull out U.S. troops. And so if you're not willing to have a U.S. presence there or have U.S. troops there, like, what what else can you do to really make a difference? The chief um, answer that the Biden administration has is that they believe the Taliban is so committed to the idea of having international legitimacy and support for any, you know, for its future government, whether that be a government that, you know, it, it um, formulates as part of a peace process or by by some other means, um, that it will, you know, refrain from trying to take over Kabul by force or do anything really sort of out of bounds. But that, you know, people, scholars debate that. How much do they care about having military aid? How much do they care about having humanitarian development aid? Hmm. And for the people who live in these places that have now been taken over by the Taliban, how does life change for them on a day-to-day basis? Well, you know, that has been a big point of debate um, in recent years, uh, the extent to which the Taliban may or may not have evolved and changed its ideology and its sort of approach to 
governing and coexisting with Afghan society um, since 2001. We know, of course, that the Taliban had a very strict version of Islam that imposed on Afghans in the 1990s, where women were largely restricted from participating in public life. Um, You know, music, uh, television were largely banned. But they say that they've modernized, but there certainly are troubling indications that they are not going to be as permissive as many Afghans hoped that they would be, this sort of Taliban 2.0. And really, you know, it's, it's... It's not consistent and uniform across the country, but where they have gained power, we have seen indications that their updated version of governance is not going to be as different from its previous version um, as many people would have hoped. Well, you said at the beginning that this is a defining moment for the U.S.'s legacy in Afghanistan. And if things continue to go poorly, I mean, what will that legacy be? Yeah, I mean, I think you you think about what happened in in Vietnam after the the American departure, the impact on American standing in the world. You know, the the idea that America stands by its allies could potentially be affected. It was a defining aspect of America's response to 9-11 and sort of of American engagement with the world and foreign policy over the last 20 years. If it collapses, not only would that potentially pose a national security threat to the United States directly, but also just says something about us as a country. And there's lots of debate that occurs about how long we should do that and you know what the opportunity cost is with our ability to tackle the challenges at home that we have. updating American infrastructure and investing in priorities at home and all of that. But certainly it is, I think, something that a lot of people will associate with the American standing in the world if Afghanistan really does fall apart. That was reporter Missy Ryan. Susanna George is the Afghanistan bureau chief for The Post. This story was produced by Alexis Diao. On Tuesday, a U.S. peace envoy brought a warning to the Taliban. They said that any government in Afghanistan that comes to power through force will not be recognized internationally. But there's still a big question of whether that threat will do anything to get the Taliban to stop seizing new territories. Since schools around the country are about to reopen, we want to tackle your concerns about how COVID affects kids and how to safely go back. If you're sending your kid back to school or if you're going back to school yourself, then send us a voice memo with your questions at postreports at washpost.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Lena Mohammed. On Tuesday, the Senate passed the $1 trillion infrastructure package, and they did it with a lot of bipartisan support. We will have more details about how they got to that rare across-the-aisle deal in Wednesday's episode. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs> 